our job is to make sure that they're being found for the keywords that are most important to them. It drives valuable traffic to their website and that turns into generally an inquiry that comes through a telephone call, an email click, a form submission. Maybe an interesting question for you is, yep. what are the drawbacks of subscription-based um, selling? One of the main drawbacks is if you end up having um, a few large clients that are a big portion of your income, if then one of those businesses decides to stop that service, it can have quite an instant effect on, on your own business. When we're talking to small businesses about our services and we can, how we can help them with SEO and Google Ads, the thing that I drive home a lot is all about what's realistic. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Unrelenting Drive podcast and before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know I started this podcast because over the years I've had hundreds of the most inspiring conversations of my life with small business owners and they really helped me grow and scale my own business and get my mindset right even when times were really tough. I wanted to capture those conversations and make them available to other small business owners who are following in my footsteps and I've just got a small request. If you enjoy this episode, if you find it really inspiring, if you find it helps you in your own business, Business, then please just like it and subscribe to our YouTube channel. The more subscribers we get, the more we can invest in making the podcast better. So enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, you are watching the Unrelenting Drive podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Anderson from Spring Hill Marketing. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. If you could just um, briefly explain to the audience what you do. Okay, so Spring Hill Marketing is an SEO and Google Ads agency. Our specialty is uh, bringing in uh, traffic to websites. So um, it's search traffic. So everyone knows how Google works and everyone knows from many years experience using Google now that there's two kind of main areas on Google. You get the sponsored ads right at the top and then you get what we call the organic uh, results that are in between the ads right at the top and the the bottom. Um, Our job is to make sure that our clients are found on Google for the keywords and the searches that mean the most to their business. So obviously that's the, you know, different searches, different keywords for each business. And actually they want to be positioned in different places within the Google results um, pages mm. um, for, for depending on who they are and who the business is. So you get the adverts right at the top and then you also get uh, people also ask section, and then you have the map, and then you have the organic, and, and all sorts. So, um, yeah, our job is to make sure that they're being found for the keywords that are most important to them. It drives valuable traffic to their website, and that turns into generally an inquiry that comes through a telephone call, an email click, a form submission, um, or a sale if it's e-commerce. That's amazing. And... Um just if we could briefly cover, how did you actually get into running your own business? What did you do after you left education and, um, and tell us about your journey? Okay, so um, I first started off as a graphic designer. So still within the marketing space, um, but on the design side. Um, I started work at a, a kind of mid-sized marketing and design agency um, as a junior graphic designer, slowly worked my way up moved across to a smaller agency um, and became the senior graphic designer there. Then I left that company, so probably at this point, maybe five or six years into my career. So quite early on, I was quite young when I first started um, business. 
Um, and the new business, my own business, was a um, single person, one man band um, design company because that was my skill set. Um, I had experience when I was working within other agencies. My experience was within quite large, well-known brands um, uh, such as Bentley and Honda, Tesco, Asda and, and, and companies like that, Discovery and, and what have you. Um, but then I started my own business from the ground upwards. Um, we were never going to shoot for those types of uh, businesses from, from word go. I was, I was aiming and targeting for local businesses. So, uh, yeah, I started that off. It was just me in, in my bedroom, as, as these things are generally. Um, and uh, so, yeah, then I decided to get an office, decided to take on um, people and uh, employees, took on a few designers over the years and grew that business up to um, around 10 people. Um, mm -hmm. And we kind of went from a design-only company to over that 10-year period to more of a full-service marketing agency. What uh, was that business called? Uh, Toxic Creative. Okay. Yeah, interesting name, isn't it? Mm. I've, got, I've, got a, I've got definitely a uh, past history of, of choosing quite strange uh, business names. I've, I've sorted that out Guess now. your attention. As, as I've matured, the names have got better. Um, yeah, so that, that was my first business, and we, we ended up being quite a... Um, full-service marketing agency. So my expertise originally was on the graphic design side of things, but as we started to work with more and more small businesses, they needed more and more kind of a full-service um, approach to, to how we did things. So um, going from doing just graphic design, which would cover logos, branding, um, signage, website design, and things like that, we started to do more and more um, and including things like marketing strategy, search engine optimization, SEO, mm -hmm. Google Ads, um, full gamut of marketing solutions. And then um, in the end, we, we ended up spreading ourselves quite thin. We were trying to do everything for everybody. We weren't niche down either, so we would work for any type of industry, any type of business locally. Mm. But it, it became too much. It was, it was, it was definitely... Um, yeah, spreading ourselves too thin, like I say. Um, and what I really wanted to do was go into the area that I had the most interest in and also the area of business where we were getting the best results. So we, we were a really good design agency, the, the, mm. in, you know, I would say. And, uh, we, you know, I, I definitely think we were working to a high standard. But all of the, all of the, the work that we were getting the best feedback from... <coughs> was the marketing solutions, SEO and Google Ads, because it was that that was driving traffic to our clients' websites, and it was leading to the inquiries and their business growth and, and sales and things like that. So I wanted to focus on that because that's what businesses were telling us they really needed. Mm. Um, but the other option I want, the other reason I wanted to go over to SEO and Google Ads was that with the old business, it was very much project-based. So every single month, I had to generate enough work to feed and look after and grow um, a, a team of 10 people. Whereas the traffic business, search engine mm. optimization and Google Ads, um, that was recurring revenue model. So we had to retain clients instead of bring in new projects every single month. Um, so I definitely was attracted to that side of things. Plus also, we were getting 
the good results on that side of things as well. So, yeah, I, I decided to, to bite the bullet, go in that direction, um, build the team up from scratch because we were no longer doing design, weren't doing development and things like that. So I had to um, bring in new team members. And it was at that point also my family was growing. So I decided to uh, go move away from having a studio in Northampton uh, town, decided to work from home. Um, I, we, my family went from having one child to three children over quite a small period. So being at home mm. was beneficial to me and the family. So because of what we were doing was a lot more digital, um, mm. I was able to then start hiring people anywhere around the world to, to when I was building up the team rather than just having to hire from the local talent pool. Um, so, so yeah, started to build that company. Uh, how, how did you extract yourself from like toxic creative in terms of like, cause you had 10 members of staff then, yep. or sorry, nine plus yep. you. Um, what, what happened to them? Was it, was it like an overnight thing or did you do it gradually? Yeah, it was overnight that the business ultimately failed. Um, we had, it, it was, it was a situation where, um, I wanted to go into a new direction, but yep. that business had come to the end of its life anyway. So Spring Hill Marketing, which is your current business, that's, um, did you manage to get some of your old clients from Toxic Creative to come with you? Yeah, yeah, we had, we had a really good relationship with our clients. We were already doing SEO and Google Ads mm. uh, with them. So, yeah, thankfully, we, we took a fair amount of, of, of clients directly mm. uh, from that business. Did you, um, you know, everything you're saying here is, have you ever read that book or listened to it, Built to Sell? Yes, and it's Big it's really yeah yeah it's really cool because it's um it's about that guy Alex Stapleton. I know it's fictional because John Warlow, the author, he um, essentially I think he sold three businesses and then the actual story of those businesses he couldn't divulge because as yeah. part of the sale agreement he he wasn't about to talk allowed to talk specifically about those businesses. But um, built to sell, he he creates the story of Alex Stapleton. He's got this um kind of the agency you're kind of describing yeah. like yeah. um they do a little bit of everything but he's being pulled in so many directions they they got all this bespoke work going on he's got to continuously resell stuff they've got some tiny clients and some gigantic clients always with the cash flow issues as well because big clients really throw their weight around with the payment terms um and then the, the story of how he like focuses all of that into just selling logos and having a business that just yep. purely focuses on logo design yep. and it's it's quite impressive i don't it, i think it's an oversimplification of it is but also it's very much the story of of, of what i've done with my business mm. um i really like the idea of having recurring revenue and being able to have retained clients for us to work on campaigns and help them over time Mm. Um, I had a lot of satisfaction from doing projects on the design side of things, which you don't quite get so much with, with what we're doing. Um, but um, nowadays, our satisfaction comes from actual results and actual being able to, mm. to, to grow businesses. Yeah, um, makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, in my um, webinar, you know, what is your business really worth? I talk about the hierarchy of um sales like you know not all sales are equal not all profit is equal like because a profit is profit but then actually what it means to the value of your business if you want to resell it generating profit in one way can lead to your business having very different value to generating it in a different way um and like you know the, the bottom of the bottom rung is where you've got transactions and you're offering people payment terms and the top end you, you've got subscriptions where there's yeah. 
um, some sort of sunk cost because they've got to pay like a setup fee at the beginning or buy some kind of equipment and then a tie and they've got to do it for at least a minimum period of time. And um, I guess you, you've kind of gone, you, you probably shifted from the bottom end of the income to the top end. And everyone talks about the benefits of subscription-based stuff. So yep. maybe an interesting question for you is yep. what are the drawbacks of subscription-based um, selling? Um, I, I think one of the main drawbacks is if you end up having um, a few large clients that are a mm. big portion of your income, if then one of those businesses decides to stop that service, it can have quite an instant effect on, on your own business. Um, that, I mean, it's the same. You could say that for most businesses if you have a large mm. contract with somebody. But um, obviously, ours, ours is recurring. So um, if we're expecting to keep a client and we keep, you know, we work with most of our clients for years rather than months, but something changes, we don't end up working with that client moving forward, then, mm. yeah, that can have quite an impact in, into our business. So we always need to make sure that we're moving forward and we're bringing in new leads, and we're taking on clients. Um, so we don't really have much of a churn within our mm. business, which is, which is good, but then you start relying on, on those clients and, and those retainers. So, You know, it's interesting you say that because in that um, webinar, what is business really worth? You know, we talk about the six factors that determine the value of your business. And like um, number three is essentially the, the quality of your income, but which in terms of subscriptions or transactions. But then number six I, I use, and that's essentially the sales risk. Yeah. Like, you know, how much of your um, how much of your business is coming from one or two big clients and actually having one or two big clients, that really devalues your yeah. business if someone's looking to buy it because they're thinking, hey, what are the chances those big clients are there because of a personal relationship with the owner who's about to leave? Um, so we, we do we do raise that awareness with our clients and businesses we talk to. But um, I guess, you know what, I, I think one other drawback of having subscription-based income, it is, it, it, by the way, when I say drawback, I mean a minor drawback, but mm. a consideration because generally subscription-based services are incredibly good for the health of a business. Um, and, and also, like John Warlow, who wrote um, Built to Sell, he also wrote another book called The Automatic Customer. And, um, you know, certain industries, it is very obvious how you can turn them into a um, subscription-based model. But what's interesting about this book is he talks about the industries where it's not as obvious um, and, and, and talks about opportunities to turn those into subscription-based businesses. You know, I think, and, and read the book, so it talks about how it applies to pretty much every industry, the yeah. idea of subscriptions. Um, but the, I, think, I do think one, one challenge when you're trying to get people on subscriptions is the, the threshold for getting them over the line as a sale is harder. Because when you when you're doing transactional work, especially if it's at a lower level, like you know, there's less risk for for the customer, and in sometimes they, they can just buy from you as a one-off just to test you out anyway. Yeah. But um, but then I, I guess the other challenge there is then getting them to come back. Um, but with the subscriptions, like you know, people know that they're building that long-term relationship with you. So actually, the, the credibility threshold at the big, beginning needs to be higher, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make you make a really good point. You need to you need to have your marketing mm. in good shape. You need to have a good reputation. You need to be able to have provable results. Um, if you can put all of those things together, it's possible to then to bring on retainers, long-term retainers. But for us, effectively, it's all about actually delivering the results. So mm. um, it's all very well being able to show past 
project successes and things like that. But if you struggle with a retainer or a project or a client, mm. they're not going to stay with you. So, um, and, and I think that's really healthy for us. We're absolutely obsessed about producing the results because that's how our, our business is run and how it, how it keeps going and how do, retention is. Do you, do you remember to shout about the wins? Um, we're probably not as good at marketing our own business as, as we do for other people. There's plenty more that mm. we can do. We're, we'd, we have case studies and mm. things like that. Uh, we could shout more about it, that's for sure. I guess every company could say the same. I mean, I, I guess the saying, a, a workman's house is never finished. And uh, it's, um, it's the same for, I mean, although our accounting's okay. Um, so, but, um, but uh, you know, when, when, you, when you work in the marketing field, I, I guess you're always spotting opportunities um, for, for yourself. Yeah, I think, I think our marketing's in good shape. It's just the, the list of things and ideas that we want to do, um, it's, it's never ending. We were having this conversation just the other day, you know, mm. the, the opportunities out there for marketing, especially digitally at the moment, it's, it's almost endless. And so much of it are, you know, such great ideas with such potential. But the thing I always say about marketing is that you have to commit to fewer things. You have to really commit to it and go through the whole process before you can come out the other side and say, okay, well, that was a huge success or it was a failure for any reason. I think the thing that I see happen all the time, especially with small businesses, is that they hear about all the different marketing channels, marketing options, and they're kind of drowning in all of these options. They know they need to be on social media. They know they need to be found when people are searching for their services online. They know they need to be, or they have the opportunity to be doing things like this podcast and lots of different options. And they try to do everything. And generally, most small businesses have a limited budget, a limited amount of time. So they end up doing all of those things at a low level. Nothing really gives them the results that they need. So I think for us, when we're talking to small businesses about our services and we can, how we can help them with SEO and Google Ads, the thing that I drive home a lot is all about what's realistic and, and how, how, what's required to get the results that they are looking for. Uh, and for, within our business, we're not, very, we're not really sales-led. I don't just want more and more clients and expect them just to leave after a few months. It's not how we run things. And I know a lot of our kind of national competitors can run a little bit like that. Um, but for us, we work with less clients, but we're looking to retain them and to be mm. able to go through the journey with them as they grow and keep working with them. So at the very beginning of the process, once we've spoken to um, a, a potential client, we take as much of the information as we possibly can. We do all the groundwork. We're looking at how they're performing currently online. Uh, we look at the competition. And we effectively, we do a gap analysis. We look at where they are versus where they want to be. We look at the competition. And then we can map out what it's going to take for them to reach the goals that, that um, they, they, they want, to, uh, want to gain. And effectively, after that process, they've got a starting point of a, a blueprint, effectively, of what we would need to do. Then it's their choice whether they work with us or not. We, we spend a lot of time on that, and a lot of people would possibly think that we, we're putting too much time into that process. But 
within our world, especially on the SEO side of things, it can be seen as a, a bit of the black art and it's very technical and um, there's a lot involved with it. So we want to give as much information as possible. We want to uh, show our clients why we need to do what we need to do rather than just say to them, this is how much it's going to cost and this is how long it's going to cost. They, you know, some clients are really interested in knowing all the data and you definitely are. When we talk about these kind mm. of things, you want, you want to know the nuts and bolts of it and you're interested in marketing and reasonably technical person. But then there's other people who they want to hear it because they, they need to know that we know our stuff and they want to be able to build that trust with us. But then from that point onwards, it's kind of just mm. down to us. They, when we're working with them, they just let us go and, and, and get on with it. One thing I've always believed, and I think, you know, you've just kind of touched on it there, is like, you know, you've got to delegate in business because um, I've had this conversation with a lot of business owners um, in the past and... Um, a lot of coaches out there i'm not like i'm not saying they're not doing the right thing or anything but a lot of coaches will take the route that you know the business owner needs to change to to get the progress they want but you know i've always believed like a business owner is who they are and who they'll always be and they will obviously adapt and develop in terms of mindset in certain ways but in terms of like their ability to utilize their time um it, their ability to do various things in business I think to to some extent, like you know, where a lot of coaches will say, um, you you've got to you, you've got to find time, you've got to change all these things. You know, I've always been, I've I've always believed like yeah, make make a reasonable effort to do that. But then after a while, I th go down and uh, understand that actually, whatever you can't do does need to be delegated. Yeah. So you know, you, you mentioned that I, I've I've always because we worked together on SEO in the past, and I've um and. I've, I am interested in the numbers, but obviously, I, because I make it, um, I make it my mission in my business to understand everything we're involved in. Mm. Um, I don't have to be as good at, as you on the SEO, but I have to. I, I even if we're outsourcing something, I, I work hard to do my homework on it, so I can actually hold a, um, a conversation yeah. and ask the right questions. Um, and I think that's always been really important. But um, but you know I. I guess, you know, if you do something where business owners can't really do it themselves in the sense that they can write a blog and they can write an yeah. article, but there's there's an element of the really ta technical aspects which yeah. just relies on you probably having to build a certain knowledge base. Yeah. And, and actually, Google has so many algorithm updates. Like, would you say, like, how much of your time really goes into just keeping up to date with all of yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's a really good, uh, really good question. Um, we are innovating and changing our approach to SEO and Google Ads mm. constantly. Um, we've got at least 600 standing operating procedures that say what we do, when we do it, why we do it, what the next step is. And a lot of those are quite long SOPs. It's really, really technical. And we're constantly updating, amending, creating new SOPs. Um, so yeah, and that's not just because of things changing with Google. That's probably 50% mm. of it. The other 50% of it is just as constantly improving what we're doing. Um, the whole company is responsible for developing those SOPs. Uh, so day one, it was me. And every time that I found I was doing something that would be a repetitive task, I then wrote it down as an instruction for 
um, somebody else to do it. And then that sl- slowly grew. Um, we've got uh, an operations manager and her responsibility, part of her responsibility is standing operating procedures. So she oversees all of the SOPs, um, but there's so much going on and so much changing the responsibility for certain areas of the business and how we do it and innovating and make things better comes down to the people who are actually doing it. So um, we encourage them to always be learning and go on courses and find out what other people are doing and ask questions out and about and um, identify where areas could be more efficient and then come to us with their recommendations. So all team members at every single level within the business will draft an SOP and then it goes to the operations manager who reviews it and kind of uh, fact checks things and proofreads it and writes it in, in a, or rewrites it in an appropriate way that's um, not ambiguous and very instructive and things like that following the guide. We have an SOP on writing SOPs. Mm. Um, and then finally that gets published and I, I oversee everything that, that changes on, on that side of things. But so it's out of, constant. Out of those 600 SOPs, how, what proportion of them are really linked to um, getting a result on Google and what proportion are linked to running your business? So I would say probably probably 60%, possibly even 70% is just for SEO. And so you're talking about 360, 420, 420 SOPs just that go into delivering a result easily, in terms of Google? Easily. I'd probably, awesome. I'd probably say easily 400 SOPs. On so the those SOP. are like 400 different activities you can do to increase someone's Google yeah, ranking. Yeah, and, and, um, and each one of those SOPs might have 20 steps in it. Can you give, me, give us a couple of examples? So SEO is split up into two major sections. We have on-site SEO mm. and off-site SEO. On-site SEO is everything that happens on the website, then off-site SEO is everything that happens away from the website. If you took one step further into on-site SEO, then you would have what's happening on a particular page, on-page SEO, and then you have the technical SEO. So things that are happening across the board uh, of the website, the technical setup of things, the structure of the website and things like that. Um, And you can just go a a step further, a step further, and a step further. So on-page SEO, that would be split up into different Mm. things. So you have um, how the content is split up into different tags. So you have header one tag and header two and then paragraphs. And then you have internal links within that. And you have metadata, meta titles, meta descriptions. Um, It just goes on and on and on. Um, So yeah, you you can't do what we do without that level of understanding, that, that much structure within it. So one of your SOPs might be check meta descriptions. Yeah, so um, one of the the most straightforward would be, let's say we have an SOP for uh, a meta title. The meta title is something that um, is shown within your Google results. So let's Mm. say somebody searched for your business um, and they were searching for Northampton accountants. Um, You'd have all of the listings of you and your competitors what you can see within that listing is split up into different parts, but the two major parts are the title and the description. The title is your meta title, uh, and, and that is within the code of the page that it's being shown. Um, again, 
there's, there's nuance in this because Google actually often rewrites these titles. But as a starting point, you want to tell Google what the major topics are, the subjects are for that page. And that's where you have it in the title. Plus also you need it to be something that will encourage somebody to click through. Um, and you need to make sure that it covers the keywords that you're interested to be found uh, with. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> it just mm. it never ends. So, I mean, I'm going to guess that most business owners have heard of Google, but um, do they really understand SEO? I think, I think um, people struggle with understanding what needs to be done. And I think a little bit of knowledge can be quite dangerous from a mm. business perspective because generally business owners that I speak to know that being on Google's important for them. Um, but they also know that guaranteeing always being in that number one position or on the first page is very difficult. And they always put that down to Google's changing the goalposts. Mm -hmm. The reality is that Google does change the goalposts and it does evolve how um, search engine optimization needs to work, but it's not the changing of the goalposts that makes it difficult. It's actually the competition that you're up against. So if, you're, if your website isn't currently showing on Google, um, and let's say you're on page three, mm. there's a fair amount of work that needs to be done to get you from page three to page two to finally page one, and then move up the ranks into the top few positions. Mm. So um, a lot of business owners will discount SEO with, with the thought that, um, well, if we spend money on this, tomorrow Google's going to change the plan and move the goalposts, and then suddenly mm. that investment will be a waste. Um, but the, that's not really what happens. Google does change its algorithm, but there are tweaks here and there. Mm. It's got a very sophisticated algorithm now, so it's making tweaks here and there. And as long as you're doing the, the right things and you're not trying to, um, to cheat Google or uh, uh, beat Google and you actually want to play along by Google's, um, Google's rules, mm. um, you, you are going to have long results and good results over time. You're not suddenly going to get knocked off of Google. It's when you try to beat the system and uh, find loopholes that you might get some short success, but, but not long success. So, I, I'm, I mean, I've been aware of this for a long time, but your, your nightmare must be the customers that just want overnight results, right? Yeah. So, we, I mean, we have to have that conversation really early on. I think the majority of companies that we speak to have enough knowledge now that they're not expecting overnight results. Um, I'm the person they speak to during the, sale, the sales journey. Um, so I really lay it in thick and make it really clear that results don't happen overnight. Um, and something that separates us from the competition, I believe, is that we're actually really good at predicting how long it will take to um, to get results for a client. So we'll almost always give an, an estimation of how long it will take to get a particular goal. How, how do you estimate that? So it's, it's a matter of, it's quite a long-winded process. It's a matter of understanding what they want to achieve, looking at the websites that are already achieving it, um, doing a gap analysis, and then figuring out, well, if, if we need to have this result, 
we need to have this factor, this factor, and this factor that at least matches these main competitors. What's it going to take for us to get those factors in place? And we just list it all out and and we can see the volume of each one of these that we need to do. We know how much work and how long it takes and how many hours it takes for each one of those things. And then we can say, okay, well, it's that many hours, so it's going to, at this budget, it's going to take us this long to get it. And we're, we're really accurate at that nowadays. And can I just assume that there's, there's always a way to win, right? It just depends on the cost. Yeah. Um, sometimes, and very, very occasionally, you're in a situation where it wouldn't be a good idea for, for them to try to go up against um, that particular industry or that particular um, website. And we'll always be really open and honest about that. So what's the alternative to that? Do they, like some form of niching? Yeah, so there's generally a way about it. So let's say a, a client is only interested in the very broad, the very um, um, obvious keyword. Um, and we can see that, well, that would, that would require a huge budget over a long, long time, but your goal is to get results and get this amount of inquiries or this amount of traffic within mm -hmm. this amount of time. So your budget doesn't stretch for that strategy. So let's look at these keywords, uh, long tail keywords that are kind of searched less, but have are more specific to what that company actually provides. So, um, and again, we, there's not always those solutions for every client, but we will look and try to figure out what's going to be best to meet their goals and expectations. Um, I guess I started this business when I was working from home. Then eventually we, we got an office and then moved along the corridor to bigger offices. And um, now, if I want to work on the business, um, I'll, I'll tell the team I'm I'm, I'm just going to work from home. But I can't really work from home because my wife works from home. So then I go to the the gym and work from the the cafe there. But the, you know, for me, I, I've if I if I want to step out of the business, so I can work on the business. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I can literally step out yeah. of the business. How, how do you do that when you're working from home? This is essential for me, Nishi. I've got a lock on the door. Okay. And I do lock that door constantly. And uh, my kids know. So we're, we're in the summer holidays at the moment. Mm. So kids are at home. But they're very well trained now. They know that if the door is shut, and especially if it's locked, then I'm probably on a call. So the assumption is they can't come in and they, they'll leave me alone. But that's, um, I guess that's protecting you from um, being interrupted. But how yeah. do you... How do you separate like working on the operations in your business to yeah. actually working on the strategic things that you need to do to grow your business? There's definite things that, that, I, that I do. Uh, the first thing is I block out time for certain tasks. Um, and for instance, on a Monday, I won't have client calls. I won't have uh, team calls either. Um, so that gives me a little bit of time to work on the business. I've got business planning, business development scheduled into the calendar for those times but then there's the odd occasion similar to yourself where i need a new environment and it i just go to a coffee shop or i go and work somewhere um you know generally a coffee shop but just that change of environment gets me out makes me think in a completely different way um yeah it, it really breaks things up mm. you know one thing i i, I always I quite like doing if I've got a set amount of time to get something done or I want to give myself a set amount of time to get something done I'll I'll leave like my charger for my laptop like in in my car or in in the office and then I'll I'll just get my laptop 
out and I'll say, okay, I've, I've got to get this work done before the battery runs out. And uh, although laptop batteries are getting um, longer now, but um, yeah, that, that's something I do actually. Um, but so, so for us, the majority of what we do is, is highly technical and people who want to be within technical industries tend to want to sit in a room on their own and have full focus on the thing that they're doing. So you tend to find that with um, uh, programmers and developers as well. Um, they generally won't want to go into an office. So the mm. people who are uh, uh, within our team who are working on those kinds of things, we have content writers and we have um, technical SEO um, specialists as well. They're doing a lot of quite technical um, work where if they if they had the hubbub of of an office behind them people coming in and out and asking questions and looking over their shoulders and things like that they'd find it quite distractive um, we've yeah. even found that our digital communication with the team sometimes can be too distracting to those team members as well so we've mm. kind of had to to manage that um, they've all got a lot of work to do and they need to get it done. It needs to be right and within a certain deadline for a particular mm. um, project and client and things like that. So I think for our industry or, and how we've set this business up, it worked really, really well. If we were doing something else, for instance, if I was still involved with design, I think it would be difficult to always do all of the design process uh, digitally over online um, I think you get a lot from being able to sit next to somebody and do a sketch and say how about move this over there um, mm -hmm. but what what we're doing is um, a lot more technical and um, so we use a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of data and things like Did that you, I think you mentioned Trello to me is that right or uh, no well we use Asana uh, oh Asana that's yeah. it and and is that the collaborative tool you use to like communicate with each other and yeah so we use asana and we use slack um yeah we're, we're going through the process at the moment of trying to use asana more rather than so a lot of asana's stuff. project management isn't it yeah okay. it's project management so um we've we've over the years well not mm. not that many years i think maybe 18 months two years um have um developed our approach of using asana so it perfectly matches what we do before that we were using um, google sheets and again we had a very well developed approach to using these sheets mm. and we've had to work actually quite hard to get something like um, asana to work well for us but we're in a position now where it does everything that we want plus also the best thing about it is that we can have communication at a task level um, so each project would probably have easily maybe uh, a couple of hundred tasks and then subtasks within within those. So if somebody's working on a particular thing, we can go into that particular task. We can see what they've done previously, how much time they've spent. We can see the files that are related to that task and we can ask questions and we can put change the priority and things like that. So we were doing all of that on Google Sheets. The one thing that Google Sheets wasn't able to do overly well for us was have that communication. So we'd have like notes written mm. in cells and as soon as it got a bit complex, mm. nightmare. Um, so yeah, Sana's really helped with that. Okay, that's that's really cool. Um, I, I guess um, some, some th questions I just want to ask about your, you know, view of business and how, how you educate yourself in terms of business. Like, yep. 
Um, have you have you read quite a few business books o- over the years? Yeah, I love I love business books. I don't do tend to do a lot of uh, direct reading. I do audio books. So yes, I've got, um, a subscription with Audible, and um, yeah, I'm always listening to a new book. Um, what What do you think? Maybe like the two or three main the, the most valuable ones you've re- read for you were. Um, they're probably going to be the few that are at the top of the list for lots of other companies, mm-hmm. but. My absolute favourite is um, E-Myth Revisited. Yeah, um, excellent. Michael E. Gerber, I yeah, think, or Gerber, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was one of the first books that, that, I, that I read. It was recommended to me um, by a business coach. Yeah. And before that point, I don't think I'd read any or many business books. But, um, I think it was the first business book I read, actually, because yeah, yeah. the business coaches tend to recommend it. Yeah, yeah. They, they really do. And um, I went through the process of at least for the first five years um, since I, I read the book for the first time, re-listening to it every single year um, and then kind of you know, considering how I'd moved on from the process and where I was at within that process. Um, the, the e-myth, of course, is hugely about systemizing your business there's there's parts in there that won't suit all businesses but the 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 part that really rung true for me was the systemization and you i've mentioned the standing operating procedures and how we do things there's so many moving parts within our business uh having those systems in in place and the checklists and things like that it's just just been absolutely essential so yeah fantastic book you know one of the things i like really like about the myth as well is it doesn't just talk about systemization in general it really focuses on how you can systemize customer service yeah and i i love the example in the book that he uses of that hotel he went to yeah where they they figure out what his favorite newspaper is and bring that along they pretty much get the service um, perfect yeah. and then but then it talks about the consistency element as well like you know he goes back year after year and it's exactly the same yeah. and um and then like i think the other lesson i really got from the e-myth is about the powerpoint selling process okay yeah. um because that, that's quite interesting like you know when i before i read the e-myth and uh, I, to be fair shortly after because i, I I'm a slow learner. I know I've said it a million times, but it I, I, it takes me a lot of time to reflect on something and then adapt it, adapt, adopt it. But then um, when we do adopt it, it sticks. But like, you know, the PowerPoint selling process, before we were just trying to sell in that one meeting, whereas, you know, the PowerPoint selling process talks about you know split your sales process out into several yeah. meetings yeah. you know don't don't force all the information on them all in one go don't try and expect them to make a decision all in one go you know it talks about the power of the follow-up and um i think that and you know since reading that book i've, I've worked with so many organizations especially the larger ones where i just recognize that process in it like you know book book in the discovery call but then have a, a quick touch point before the discovery call touch point after and then book in your sales meeting and then have a touch point before and touch point after and then book in your proposal presentation meeting and then have the touch points before and after and and then the follow-up but i think that that was a really good t- takeaway point for me eat for, for the emeth in my opinion yeah we we take very similar process we probably could do more of the touch points but in terms of how we split out that sales process mm. that's very much how we do it what other business books do you really like 
Um, so Built to Sell, the one you mentioned, is a favourite of mine. Very mm. similar, I think. Um, also, currently I'm reading... What's it called? Oversubscribed. Um, yeah, that's... I'm, mm. I'm about halfway through that at the moment, but um, a kind of marketing-related book. That's quite good. What's the, is that about just having too many customers? Yeah, the idea is... Um, getting your marketing and sales process in place so that um, yeah, you're oversubscribed for it and mm. um, your audience can see that um, you know, if, if they don't get involved, then um, they might be missing out on something, adding scarcity basically. Oh, excellent, okay. Yeah, it, it's really good. Um, I think the, the crux of it really, and I'm only kind of halfway through, yeah. but I think the crux of it really is about taking a, a campaign approach um, testing the market initially to find out what the interest might be mm. and then um, following up with with those people who have shown some interest and say well you can kind of get early bird access to this event or this thing or whatever it might be um, and and um, tell them that we've had a lot of interest in it and um, start to uh, sign people up and then get to a point where you have to then turn people away um, you know what i was do you think that still works in this day and age? Because I like I called up BT because our internet was too slow and we need another line because like, you know, now we've got a marketing team, they're always uploading and downloading. And um, and then we had a load of accountants complaining about the slow internet because of the marketing team uploading and downloading stuff all day. So we end I called up BT and like they um they were talking about, oh, you know what, you don't need another line. You get like a, a lease a, a line and pay three hundred pounds a month and it didn't it didn't make any sense and they they really weren't listening to me and i i kind of but i kind of i kind of felt i was being upsold to right but i don't for me i, I don't know if you know i can necessarily relate to business owners that haven't been through the same level of sales training mm. or but sometimes I, I do know when people are artificially creating scarcity yeah like one one thing i always ask is when someone says hey you've got to you got to sign on before this date yeah. because the price is going up yeah. and i'm like why is the price going up? Yeah. What's gonna? What is fundamentally changing in your business model between With, now and then? Within within this strategy, by the sounds of it, mm. like I say, I'm only halfway through, but it 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 wasn't an artificial uh, mm. approach to it. It was it was uh, being able to get feedback on those people who showed some interest. So a micro commitment to yeah. actually, yes, I would be interested in this type of event. And then going back to those people and saying, well, actually, we've had a lot of response to it and mm. no, no, no lies with that. And then finally get people to sign up based on that. And um, um, but also at the same time, I believe the idea is that if you don't get that initial um, interest in it, then you decide, well, we're not going to do it. So it's the yeah. absolute opposite of, of, of spending a lot of time putting a campaign together or an event together and then spend all the money and all of the planning and then try to sell these tickets or mm. try to get uh, adoption then to find that actually, um, yeah, it was difficult to bring people over the line. So, yeah, that's the idea really rather than um, trying to um, artificially um, put scarcity in, into place, I think. Okay, yeah, makes sense, definitely. And Chris, have you, because you mentioned like the EMA 3 visited, it was recommended to you by a coach. Have yeah. you... You've had coaching in the past, haven't you? I have, yeah. How, how long have you done it for? Like, you know, what, what did you, um, what, what were your key takeaway points? How did it, so many questions actually. Let's go yeah. that. It's yeah, so um, 
I, I first had, had a coach possibly about eight, nine years ago. Um, and it was a really good experience. Um, there was a lot w involved with, within that, that coaching that I didn't know existed. There was, I had a lot of learning back to, uh, to do back then. So I have loads of learning to do now, of course, but um, a lot of it was new to me. And I think the initial process of doing a, almost like a business audit right at the beginning of it really helped me. So um, in, in a similar way that you do your quarterly planning where you're considering the major areas of your business and then s splitting that out into sections and then answering questions mm -hmm. in terms of how well you perform or how well you think your business performs mm -hmm. in particular areas and then simply taking those and prioritizing them for for the beginning of your um, business building um, process mm -hmm. so I, I think I was surprised about what I could see within the results of, of that initial audit. And then I could see the structure of what we were going to work on over the, over the next period. So it was very um, collaborative. Um, and yeah, I, I learned a lot really. And um, yeah, it get, gave, put, gave me a plan, gave me a plan really, mm. which was the most important thing. Whereas I think a lot of bit small businesses fall down the trap of just doing the do and just being busy on a day. And I, yeah. I still struggle with that. Um, at times but um, having a business plan knowing where you're going committing to it having accountability for that which of course a coach provides I think was absolutely essential and um, how do you think your mindset has changed since you've been coaching uh, well um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily due to the coaching that I had but um, I, I guess I've been doing business for 17 18 years and at first, or in the first, you know, maybe five, ten years, um, the the struggles that came along affected me. You know, it really kind of hit home when when something didn't go right. Mm -hmm. I think I've I've become um, very grey in that period, and um, now I kind of take it all a little bit more of a pinch of salt. I realise there's there's things that work out and things that that, that, that don't work out. So. Um, I'm a very positive person uh, and I think that helps uh, but yeah I, I try not to allow the emotion um, to become something too big when it's business at the end of the day it's just it's just business why do you believe positivity is important in business maybe it, it, it depends on the type of person that you are I personally like positivity um, I, I don't think you're going to make good strong at times risky decisions unless you have a bit of positivity in, in front of you i wouldn't necessar mm. necessarily say um i'm completely um an optimist um i definitely have some pessimism um, in mm. me but i think in my day-to-day -day, i'm very positive i think that's important we've got a team of 14 people um they need they you know they, they're not going to uh, perform well if there's a lot of negativity coming from the top. Um, and yeah, we, we work as a team. We have, we have um, project teams. Mm. So we have to have positivity between us and we have to be able to communicate well. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I, I did a video um, probably a couple of months ago. It was about, you know, where business owners go wrong in decision making and essentially... Mm. There's a lot of business owners out there who 
are so pessimistic. They'll always look at the worst case scenario on everything. And the problem with looking at the worst case scenario is you'll never say yes to a decision. Um, But then there's other business owners where they will look at the best case scenario. And the problem with the best case scenario is you'll always overreach and then um, end up with the the logistical nightmare that it creates. Um, so, uh, you know, good, good quality decisions are based off realism, really. And um, the realism, I, I guess, um, um, in my opinion, the, the best business book, which I'll tell you about in a second, but also you did touch upon the quarterly planning and, you know, there's a, a good book, but slightly boring by Gino Wickman called Traction. And if you can make it all the oh, way yeah, through. Like yeah, I, I, I struggled with it a bit, but it makes some very good points. Yeah. Um, and it's... Um, it talks about the importance of the quarterly planning cycle and and the um, and that that's really important. But go, going back to this, like you know, the realism element. And um, I was having this conversation with Holly as well. Well, I'm trying to say so much stuff, but ultimately, the book, um, the best business book in my opinion that I've ever read is um, it's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And um, this book essentially, um, it, it doesn't it has an interview with someone called um, also Jim. Um, Scott Scottdale, sorry, Jim Stockdale, and he was a um, he was an admiral in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War, and um, he was he he flew a, a fighter jet mission essentially. Um, admirals don't usually climb into a fighter jet, but maybe they're short on pilots, so he flew a mission over Vietnam, got shot down, and it was at the beginning of the war. So he spent eight years in the Hanoi Hilton, and the Hanoi Hilton is the, the name they gave the um, prisoner war camp that they put all the pilots in in North Vietnam. And um, one of the things um, they this book um, it, called Good to Great asked uh, the author asked um, Jim Stockdale was essentially. Look, how did you make it eight years in this prison or war camp and then finally get released when so many people around you died? Um, and he said it was always the optimists that would die um, because they'd, yeah, and, and they'd go, they'd end up in the prison or war camp and they'd say, we'll be out by December. Um, then December came, they'd be, they said, we'll, we'll be out by Easter. Mm-hmm. And then Easter came and, um, and then they said, we'll be out by summer. And then eventually Christmas came all over again and they weren't out and they died of a broken heart. And I think it links in quite well to, um, and, and actually there was an interview with Churchill as well. And it, and I was talking about this with Holly, who's a member of our team yesterday, because Holly um, pointed out, you know, Churchill did have mental health issues, um, obviously like the pressure on him and all that. And, and this book touched upon how he dealt with those mental health issues. And, you know, Churchill said, look, I created a special department just to give me statistics. And even in the darkest days of the war, they would give me numbers and the numbers weren't always easy to look at. But event- but what they told me was that there was a realistic possibility of us coming out the other side. Um, and the reason Churchill ended up with those, um, you know, bits of depression and stuff was when he believed that the war was un- unwinnable. But it was this, st- this department that he created that kept reminding him, actually, victory was realistic, even in the darkest days. And... Um, and it's quite interesting. So going back to what, what we're talking about, you know, the, the positivity and it, as long as it's re- linked to the realism, yeah. um, that's one of the most powerful things a business owner can um, can essentially do from what I've seen and, yeah. and learned. You can go either way, can't it? You can be too pessimistic, you can be too optimistic. You've got to you have some kind of a balance. And it depends also what you're tackling, doesn't it? Um, 
I, I, I do think um, a healthy, healthy measure of, of, of both, depending on what you're doing, is, is essential. I totally agree. Mm. So, like, from a business perspective, what keeps you up at night? don't think much keeps me up at night anymore um definitely it, it has done or it, it did previously um client results i think would be the one thing i don't have sleepless nights anymore but when i whenever i have done in previous years it would be about um a, a project that wasn't working and the the concern of that it's it's our number one thing within the business of course i kind of would go out go without saying but i do find a lot of businesses are kind of sales led Mm -hmm. um we could do with being a little bit more sales led and being uh, focusing more on that side of our business i'm sure however um we everything that we talk about within the business is about getting the results so yeah we're always having to innovate and we're always um trying to to get the results for our clients. Some projects are easier than others. Do you, do you feel a lot of the competitors in your industry, they're not re- as results orientated as you are? All I can go on is what I see when we take on a campaign from a competitor. So we can see what they've been doing and we can mm-hmm. often see the strategy of what they've been doing. Our clients will share the reports and share um, the strategies and things like that. Um, I think... I don't want to, um, I need to be careful. I don't, I don't want to downplay any competitors and I'm not necessarily talking about any company or any company local to us. Um, and we, we work with a lot of clients nationally and internationally. So uh, the one thing that I would say is what we see often is not that great, really. Um, I, I tend to find some of the basic stuff isn't, correct so they're actually shooting for they're having the wrong strategy they're looking at the wrong keywords they don't have realistic expectations and that's ultimately why these clients will come to us in the end is that because they haven't done their key keyword research properly or i don't know i don't know what drove them to make the decisions that, that they did maybe they just didn't they didn't truly understand what it would take or they allowed the client to drive them to focus on something that wasn't realistic and they couldn't tell the client we're really transparent really open with our clients and from the word go when we when we're talking to a client we will be really honest and sometimes that requires some quite difficult conversations um and i think a lot of salespeople would possibly think that we could be a bit more optimistic i like i like to be really conservative in terms of what we're going to achieve for our clients because we want to have those monthly meetings with the client and be delivering above and beyond what was expected um so yeah i am quite conservative um and i think possibly the biggest failure of other companies within our space would be they're too optimistic in terms of results and not realistic enough okay yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense i I guess like you know they're probably maybe it's easier to tell someone what they want to hear than to, yeah. So Chris, if you, if you could um, maybe describe your company in five years time, how is it going to be different from where you are now? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, five years time. Well, 
we, we, we are ambitious. We want, to, uh, we want to grow the company. We want to make sure that where we are in five years' time isn't, isn't turning into a monster that isn't what it is at the moment. Um, we're interested in growing. We want to work with, with more companies. We're, we're starting to take on clients internationally. So I think possibly that would be the focus. Uh, so yeah, you, you know, keep the growth going how it is. Uh, but take on some uh, more national uh, projects of, of, in areas that we're, we're most interested in. And would you say SEO is the same all over the world? Um, SEO is the same um, around the world. It, where you are located doesn't make a big difference. It's the industry or the sector that you're working in that makes the biggest difference. Ultimately, uh, <coughs> what we do and what we need to do at any point within um, the, the life of a, of a campaign, it's dictated by what the people who are already winning within that space mm -hmm. have done. So we have to then go in that same journey. So uh, what it would be within one sector or one industry compared to another um, can be completely different. Okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, that, that also means your business is, got, is, is infinitely scalable, really. Like, there's so many businesses out there that are, need a Google presence. Yeah, yeah. Um, ultimately, um, it's sensible for us to start working with more and more companies that um, have uh, working within the space that we already have experience mm -hmm. with. So, that's going to be something that we, we, we focus on uh, moving forward. Um, but but yeah, it's um, it's about it's about taking what we've already learned and being able to deliver it to, uh, mm. to to different businesses. Okay, absolutely amazing. And we've kind of already touched on it, but if you could give someone starting out in business one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm I'm going to say have a business plan and have a, a fluid business plan, something that you look at every single week something that you are updating so i i don't i don't have a business plan in as much that the kind of thing that you would put together to to raise finance for a business instead it quite simply lists my goals and projects for the month and then for the quarter and then for the year and then future years and then every month that goes past I update and change it depending on what has been done, tick things off the list. So it's very much a, a, a fluid plan of, of what I need to do. And when I am on that and I'm checking it and I'm updating it, that's when the business moves forward. I think it's really easy to get lost being a practitioner and delivering the thing that you're experienced within rather than working on the business and developing the business and a business plan and a fluid business plan allows you to do that. Amazing. And um, finally, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, so Google Spring Hill Marketing, you'll find us. And if you don't find us, then we're not doing our job properly. Okay, amazing. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been really insightful. And um, everyone, you've been watching the Unrelenting Drive podcast, so stay, stay tuned for future episodes.